Before we get started, if you're interested in the medieval era, you'd probably like the horse's store. There's a sword and some shirts that I'll take inspiration from medieval design. Check it out at horses.land and I hope you enjoy this video. Steal from the rich and give to the poor is known as the binding philosophy of Robin Hood. For centuries, the stories of this vigilante justice have persisted in one way or the other. On a narrative storytelling level, the implications of the Robin Hood philosophy are pretty obvious. Robin Hood will plunder from the wealthy and then donate those stolen goods to people in need. But the phrase has much more complicated implications on topics like morality and justice and the fundamental idea of goodness. This is made all the more complex when we actually examine the stories of Robin Hood. Does he in fact steal from the rich to give to the poor? What cultural conditions led to this as an ideal? Was Robin Hood a real person? We will get to all of these questions, of course, but first, let's examine the philosophy of Robin Hood. So to understand any of this, you do need some very basic knowledge of the folklore beyond take from rich, give to poor. Across the Robin Hood canon, the following is basically true. Richard the Lionhearted is a just, respectable king as he rules over the lands, but he has left, first on a crusade before being held captive. In Richard's absence, his brother, John, usurps the throne. John constructs a system that unjustly enriches himself and his associates. This is the philosophical setting of Robin Hood's adventures, an unfair system that punishes the weak and rewards the corrupt. In this paper, Professor Yeppe von Platz examines the justice implications of Robin Hood's tales. Distributive justice is a concept that deals with how costs and rewards are shared or not by any given community. If two bakers each make one layer of a two-layer cake, then sell that cake, they may likely split the profit 50-50. But what if one layer is much better than the other, or if one baker found the person to buy the cake, or any number of other variables? Should the benefits then be split equally between the two bakers? The sorting out of these issues falls under distributive justice. In this paper, Von Platz points out that Despite it being easy to think Robin Hood exists in a land of distributive justice, he really does not. Instead, he exists and functions adjacently to this concept. Robin Hood is actually engaged in corrective justice. That is, correcting a flawed outcome rather than dealing with the system itself. Robin Hood does not seek to correct individual wrongs, exact reparations for past injustices, or consciously resist a given regime. Now, he does do these things as side effects of his main mission, but those things are not in themselves Robin Hood's goals, nor are they how he justifies his banditry. Instead, Von Platz points out, Robin commits crime because it corrects the effects of a corrupt system. You see, Robin Hood believes there are actually two conversations to be had, how to fix a broken system and how to deal with the effects of that broken system. He is almost exclusively interested in the latter of these conversations. Again, Robin does not seek to change the system itself, but through his philosophy, he looks to correct its unjust effects. He essentially offers a band-aid. And the concept of a band-aid is often looked at derisively or diminutively, but band-aids are important. If you are bleeding, you need to bandage your wound. You don't want blood just spilling out everywhere. 
Robinhood takes this position quite proudly, that distributive injustices are not only solved by a new system, but are themselves unjust and thus need their own fixing. Von Platz goes on to note that Robinhood does not believe the system is entirely irrelevant. After all, he abandons his outlaw lifestyle when King Richard returns. This says that Robin believes theft, kidnapping, and even murder are unacceptable within a just system, and thus validated by the existence of an unjust system. Essentially, Robin believes two wrongs can, and do, make a right. Ultimately though, Robin Hood is primarily motivated by the downstream effects of that unjust system. As Von Platz says, this is an interesting perspective. Today, many people can agree that, globally or just in America, power, opportunities, and wealth are not equally distributed. But there is still a huge disagreement about finding a solution. How, why, and should we even care about these inequalities? There are infinite answers. Then if we do care, how should we correct them? Again, endless possibilities. Robin Hood would argue that these disagreements are irrelevant, and that, in fact, the effects of an unjust system are in place and must be addressed independently of that system itself. Of course, Robin Hood would have his fair share of detractors, as Von Platz astutely points out. People will say that inequality is the result of individual efforts and choices, luck, technology, and a whole bunch of other things. They may say that most people in medieval England or today are not poor because of past injustices or an unjust system, but because of these things, choices, luck, etc. And so taking from the rich and giving to the poor unfairly, and indeed unjustly, takes from those who were not propped up by some great injustice. Furthermore, it would also give to people who were not negatively affected and thus not now deserving of that charity. But Robin Hood would basically say, I don't care. He would argue that taking from the rich and giving to the poor still fixes the effects of past inequalities, even if it takes from people whose material conditions do not exist as a consequence of those past inequalities. As long as taking from the rich and giving to the poor fixes the effects of distributive injustice, Robin Hood believes it to be legitimate. Furthermore, Robin Hood never indicates that he believes resources should even be distributed according to merit. Again, he is only concerned with the distributive effect, not the mechanics of distribution itself. In this way, there is something Machiavellian about the Robin Hood philosophy. Von Platt's insights are tremendously interesting, and I suggest reading this whole paper for a more comprehensive perspective on the Robin Hood philosophy. But really, all of this rests on a concept much higher than redistribution of goods. The concept of morality. And indeed, Robin Hood's philosophy has significant implications on the concept of right versus wrong. Of course, any person who has philosophized about anything has thought about morality. What is right? What is wrong? How do we determine those answers? Etc. But I think the most immediately relevant philosophical concept here is utilitarianism. Stephen Nathanson from Northeastern University wrote a wonderfully comprehensive article about utilitarianism as a philosophy. Here I will be leaning on his work and connecting it, where I can, with Robin Hood. 
The core idea of utilitarianism is that actions are right or wrong based entirely on their end effects, not the actions themselves. Utilitarians argue that we simply should make life better for the largest amount of people possible. The philosophy rejects moral codes that are based on religion or tradition. Instead, morality and justice can be measured by the positive impacts an action has on human or non-human beings. Of course, we can then ask, well, what is good? What is a positive impact? This is a debate that could rage on endlessly, so we do need to draw the line somewhere. For the purposes of this essay, goodness will be things that positively affect an individual's happiness. Robin Hood believes that by stealing from the rich and redistributing those goods to the poor, he can materially and positively impact a greater number of people than if he were to not steal. So, he is a utilitarian. This position is both defensible and arguable, as Nathanson writes in his article. In theory, if everyone acted according to utilitarianism, humanity would maximize its capability for producing positive effects. Everyone does the most good they can, and then humanity as a whole is doing all the good it could ever potentially do. Traditional moral codes identify acts themselves as right or wrong, regardless of context. The Ten Commandments, for example, says thou shalt not kill. The philosopher Immanuel Kant was noted for, among other things, the belief that lying is wrong no matter what. But there are many, many examples of killing to prevent more killing. Kant's idea leaves no room for lying to save people's lives or to prevent suffering. Utilitarianism and Robin Hood solve this issue by recognizing that the effects of a so-called immoral action are actually determined by the context of that action. Morality is generally accepted as a wildly subjective topic, but by finding an endpoint for actions and examining only the net effects, Robin Hood makes morality into something much more objective. You can determine if an act is right or wrong based entirely on its end result. By quantifying the amount of goodness an act creates, morality becomes rather simple. Unfortunately, Robin Hood's perspective is not at all bulletproof, as Nathanson points out. For one thing, Robin Hood's philosophy implies that acts we would all agree to be wrong can be permissible. Nathanson gives three really good examples of this. If a judge could prevent deadly riots by executing an innocent individual, utilitarians would have the judge convict and execute that innocent man. If a doctor could save five people from death by killing one healthy, innocent person and harvesting their organs, Robin Hood's utilitarianism implies that the doctor should, in fact, kill this innocent individual. If a person makes a promise to someone but could break that promise and make two other people very happy, Utilitarianism and Robin Hood again implies the person should go back on their word. By similar logic, we can start to find holes in Robin Hood's ideas. Shouldn't he also steal from the middle class to feed the poor? This would, in theory, create more happiness in the world even if a small number of middle class citizens have to be sacrificed. Robin Hood's utilitarianism, it could be argued, also erodes trust. Nathanson points out, if people are bound to act based on net effects rather than actions themselves, no one is really beholden to any predictable standard of ethics. Who knows how a judge will rule in a case? Politicians would also become entirely unpredictable. Suddenly, the moral life can quite easily permit cheating, stealing, and lying. 
To have a functioning social order in society, Nathanson points out, certainly we need some amount of trust and predictability in the behaviors of one another. Critics of utilitarianism also say the philosophy just puts too much expectation on the individual. If we all truly adhered to this moral code, we would have to scrutinize our every action to a degree that is basically unlivable. Should you really buy a new jacket, you could donate that money and create more good in some impoverished nation. Should you really eat when you're just hungry? After all, you could buy food for people who are actually starving. All in all, the moral implications of Robin Hood are not so cut and dry, and there are strong arguments both for and against. Even I, as someone who generally sides with Robin Hood, can recognize that no moral code, Robin's included, will ever be entirely without fault. I suppose a decision must be made then. What faults are you willing to accept? At this point in the conversation, our road diverges in two different directions. On one path, we could investigate further distributive justice and utilitarianism. This path, unfortunately, has no real destination. It is a winding road full of great arguments and great counter-arguments without any objective conclusions. The other path is that of Robin Hood himself. The fact is that all of this information has been taken very, very far from the context of Robin Hood and his folklore. Reducing centuries of stories to steal from the rich and give to the poor is just silly. In fact, you could argue that it's incorrect. Never in the original lore does Robin Hood do this, but we'll talk about that later. By going down this path and understanding Robin Hood, the times which forged the legend and the question of his existence as a real historical figure, we can enhance our understanding of the story's numerous philosophical implications. There have been a lot of investigations into Robin Hood as a non-fictional character and the story's non-fictional aspects. For this video, I will look to the well-sourced work of Leslie Coote and Sean McGlynn. If you want an even more comprehensive version of this information, I strongly suggest reading these books. They're really great. There are very few legends with the staying power of Robin Hood. Just saying his name brings to mind a whole world and moral imperative. As McGlynn points out, around the globe, numerous other countries have developed their own versions of this English hero. Tantia Bill is the Indian Robin Hood. Gaspard de Besse is known as the Robin Hood of Provence, and Johannes Buckler likewise serves as the Robin Hood of Germany. But the most obvious place to start is with the name Robin Hood. It would be, usually, but as McGlynn's research shows, the name Robin Hood is basically meaningless. Medieval England offers us a wide, wide variety of real individuals by the name Robin Hood. At the time, it was a catch-all name, a moniker assigned to anonymous criminals. Think the outlaw version of John Doe. In addition to Robin and Hood, both separately being quite common names, it becomes difficult to trace down any real, definite Robin Hood in history who were not just later anointed that title. Further, it's hard to say if the name was assigned to criminals because of the Robin Hood stories, or if the character earned his name because it was assigned to criminals. If we take the name Robin Hood as a single word and surname, though, we do discover something. McGlynn found that between 1265 and 1322, that surname appears in Sussex, London, Hampshire, Suffolk, and Essex. Ironically, though, it does not appear in Nottingham or 
Yorkshire, both places generally serving as the settings for Robin Hood's tales. Among those individuals with the surname Robin Hood, there is a distinct association with crime. Alexander Robehood was a thief, Robert Robehood likewise. John Rabinhood was a murderer. There are a number of these, and Robert or Robin Hoods who were criminals in 13th-14th century England. But being that the fables of Robin Hood were likely well established by that point, you can't really say that Robin Hood as a character was named after any of these men. In a way, the name Robin Hood tells us very little about Robin Hood. We kind of just come to a murky, confusing, and very inconclusive point in our knowledge. So failing this, we could look to the depiction, the uniform of Robin Hood as we know him today. But as Coote points out, his iconic appearance was actually co-opted. In 15th century England, book printers would basically use whatever image they had lying around to illustrate a story, whether it was appropriate or not for the work. This was the cost-effective way of producing illustrated works. It is in this method that we find our first image of Robin Hood. This image comes from an edition of Chaucer's Canterbury Tales in a story decidedly not about Robin Hood. Rather, the image is used to depict a countryside servant. It shows an adult male riding a horse, clad in a tunic, riding boots, and a deep-brimmed hat pointed at the back. The hat is held onto his head with a band tied beneath his chin, and the servant carries a bow. He is also wearing a cloak, which the accompanying text tells us is green. At the time, a green cloak was standard attire for foresters and hunters. Coote notes that this same image was later applied as an illustration of Robin Hood in the year 1495, well after the tales themselves originated. Thereafter, a green cloak and a pointed hat fell into the Robin Hood canon as his uniform. So, while academically interesting, Robin Hood's name and appearance actually reveal very little about the fables. And so, we can examine those fables more directly. Robin Hood tales were likely being told in the 13th and 14th centuries, but one of the first recorded stories comes from around 1450. This story is known as Robin Hood and the Monk. It's a violent story in which Little John and Robin Hood share the role of protagonist. The two friends leave Sherwood Forest en route to Nottingham to attend church. On the journey, they get in an argument over archery skills. Little John storms off back to Sherwood Forest while Robin goes onward to the city. Robin is then recognized by a monk in Nottingham who attempts to have him arrested. Robin Hood kills 12 of the Sheriff of Nottingham's men before attempting to kill the Sheriff himself, but his sword breaks in two on the Sheriff's head. The Sheriff captures Robin Hood and word travels back to Little John. After traveling with Robin's men to Nottingham, Little John decapitates the monk who had Robin arrested. John's companion proceeds to sever the head of the monk's child assistant. Little John and Robin's men rescue Robin Hood and the day is saved. McGlynn points to another early Robin Hood tale stemming from the 1470s. In this story, Robin is found by a bounty hunter outside of his camp. The two have an archery competition before fighting in earnest. Robin kills the bounty hunter before mutilating the dead man's face with a knife and decapitating him. Robin takes the severed head and places it on the end of his bow. 
He uses this as a disguise to visit the town sheriff and collect the bounty hunter's reward for killing Robin Hood. You may notice that nowhere in these stories does Robin Hood steal from the rich and give to the poor. This is not as universal of a motivation for Robin as people now take it to be. Indeed, Robin doesn't ever actually do this so literally. Rather, he robs from people he sees as benefiting from the corrupt king and gives to people he deigns to be morally fit to receive the spoils, poor or otherwise. And even this occurs only on occasion. Throughout the stories, the focus is more on Robin Hood's various hijinks, fights, and miraculous escapes. But in both of the aforementioned stories, and in most Robin Hood stories, the sheriff serves as Robin's arch enemy. The sheriff is usually the sheriff of Nottingham, but this presents a problem. Historians like McGlynn generally agree that Robin Hood has his origins in oral tradition, dating between the 12th and 14th centuries. But the title, Sheriff of Nottingham, did not exist until the mid-15th century. So it seems likely that when the role of sheriff was established, that person was inserted into the stories. Prior to this, there are a number of candidates who could have played this role, but it's clear throughout the history of Robin Hood, all of these adversaries can basically be seen as one in the same. The foe of Robin Hood is not an individual, but the idea of corrupt taxation and the effects of a corrupt judicial system. Robin's enduring role has been to correct these wrongs. By examining the location of the Robin Hood fables, we can also come to a deeper understanding of the lore and its place in history. It is generally accepted that Robin Hood originates from the northern Midlands and South Yorkshire in England. Furthermore, he clearly comes from some forested or forest-adjacent area. Medieval chroniclers often refer to Silvatici, a sort of outlaw who hides away in forested areas. Robin Hood's activities mean he could be categorized as such. Sherwood is the most famous forested area associated with Robin and his men. Robin Hood's company was said to be about 140 people. Sherwood Forest was simply too small for that population of people to live in and hide. It could be traveled north to south in under a day. Tracking down 140 people and their leader in such a forest would be a truly easy task. Yet, Robin Hood continuously, somehow, evaded authorities. Scholars have suggested other locations for the origins of Robin Hood's stories, but these have all been inconclusive. The issues with Robin Hood being truly from some real place reveal another important aspect about the stories. They are fictional. There is no reason to trust any of the ballads, what they say about the forest, or about the location of Robin Hood. These stories did not exist to document any real goings-on. No, their purpose was much grander, and now, centuries later, I would argue, just as important. In his book, McGlynn points out that Robin Hood tales were not written to inform. Rather, they were written primarily to entertain. While we now place great moral and philosophical weight on the folk tales of days gone by, we should not forget their primary purpose, entertainment. Medieval people were not different from us. They too needed escapist fantasies to distract from whatever harsh realities life may have offered. And so the Robin Hood ballads are full of heightened reality, violence, action, comedy, and more often than not, a happy ending. 
Violence, in particular, was a cornerstone of the Robin Hood tales. Although violence does seem to have an infinite allure for audiences, it usually stems from something in particular. For Robin Hood, this was largely the chivalric nature of the medieval period. Chivalry today is often associated with gentlemanly behavior, but in this context it refers to the chivalric code, an informal code of conduct for knights in the medieval era. Knights were all but superheroes, so this code became a sort of aspirational ideal for the laypeople as well. This manifested itself in songs and ballads, which often glorified violent triumphs. In these stories, knights would carry out these acts and sometimes die violently themselves in the process. McGlynn has provided us with several fantastically gruesome examples of these stories. From the French Raoul de Cambrai, we have From front to rear he rammed his lance's point and flung him down to die in his gore. There is a work called The Knights of Narbonne which features this passage. The heathen's hand was smitten off, his eye plucked out and then his nose half split and sliced. There is also this from the Song of Roland. He splits the skull, he dashes out the brains. Down to the beard, he cleaves him through the face. This fascination with violence did not just exist in fiction either. There were crusades in France in the 13th century which now have a well-earned reputation for brutality. Indeed, even the clergy themselves were captivated by bloodshed. One clergyman wrote of a military campaign that included dismemberment, stoning to death, and shattered kneecaps. In these writings, one man is thrown into boiling tar while another is disemboweled. As McGlynn points out, this obsession continued into the 14th century, especially in ballads and poems. The deeds of Don Pero Nino from the 1430s feature a hero who receives a crossbow bolt through his nose, which is then hammered into his face by an enemy soldier. The writing describes another man's head getting split in half, quote, down to the eyes. Famed storyteller Bertrand de Born was obsessed with this violence in his work, lamenting once that the springtime brought too much peace and that he hoped for bloodshed in the fall so he could, quote, see the dead with lances piercing their sides. When you consider all of this, the violent nature of many Robin Hood stories seems quite appropriate. Of course, chivalry is not the same as violence, and a more comprehensive version of the chivalric code does reveal itself in the Robin Hood ballads. In his book, McGlynn notes that Robin Hood is courteous and generous. Robin Hood defends honor, or rather, acts in a way that common people would consider honorable. Like a knight, he carries and uses a sword. When he deems it appropriate, Robin is also respectful to those of higher social classes. In one tale, an actual knight even expresses utmost respect and admiration for Robin himself. Although Robin Hood himself is not motivated by a desire to change any so-called system, the revolt against an unjust system is the most pervasive theme in these stories. In the mid-15th century, McGlynn points out that populism was a major force in English politics. After being defeated in the Hundred Years' War, losing Normandy and then the province of Gascony to the French, soldiers, often unpaid, were returning to England quite demoralized. Things in England weren't really great either. Then King Henry VI was falling into regular bouts of catatonic stupor, which made him entirely incapable of doing anything at all, including running the country. In this state, he could not even recognize his own family. 
Word got out, and there became a general perception that order had broken down, and that justice simply was not being served. Political factions morphed into armed forces as the country became increasingly unsettled by its leaders. Many of these armed militias included merchants, artisans, and tradespeople. Common people, the exact people who populate and enjoyed the tales of Robin Hood. You could even consider Robin himself to be one of these commoners as he righted the injustices around the English countryside. But Robin Hood was also a criminal. He was a poacher, a kidnapper, a murderer, and a few other things throughout his ballads. As McGlynn asks, how did the common people square this inconsistency? If they were upset that order had broken down, why would they have celebrated a criminal, even in fiction? The answer to this lies in the nature of Robin's crimes and how those crimes would have been viewed at the time. Although it certainly wasn't the main focus of the stories, Robin Hood was a poacher. He and his merry men lived in the forest where they survived by hunting and eating deer, thus illegally thinning the herds, herds which were property of the king. Most commoners would have seen this as a victimless crime. There was more than enough game to go around, and the king probably wouldn't even notice. As McGlynn notes, the forests were also subject to their own sets of laws, entirely separate from those governing the rest of the land. But the commoners had a problem with this. They held a sense of entitlement to the forests. It was their land where they lived, and yet the king had written his own special set of laws for it. This was a strongly held sentiment among forest-living people. In Sherwood Forest in 1276, two archers were arrested for poaching and detained by the king's forest official. A gang of 20 men armed with swords and bows broke into the holding facility, beat up the guards, and released the two poachers. Immediately thereafter, the now 22 men smashed the windows of the forest official's home. This sort of behavior was quite normal. It was generally accepted that courts would not prosecute for poaching or other forest-related crimes. Around this time, Henry VII came to power and ordered a crackdown of this lenience. Certainly, sympathies would have arisen for a Robin Hood-esque character. More than a poacher, though, Robin Hood was a murderer and a kidnapper. These crimes were significantly less acceptable than poaching. But Robin Hood-esque versions of them did exist in real life. In 1317, Louis de Beaumont was the bishop-elect of an English town called Durham. He had come into harsh criticism by the common people that he was unfit to be in the clergy. There were allegations of corruption and bribery. Furthermore, rumor began circulating that he didn't even know Latin, which was essentially the language of the church and the language of God. And so, a gang of robbers kidnapped the corrupt bishop-elect and held him for ransom. The incident received continental attention, and the gang's leader was eventually arrested, drawn, hanged, disemboweled, and decapitated. It's really not hard to imagine how common people would have reacted to that punishment. Although not honorable, kidnapping, murder, and ransom were common in the English countryside. There were a number of famous criminal gangs often operating in forests. Most notable among these, McGlynn points out, were the Folvilles and the Cotarelles. In one early Robin Hood tale, the Fulvilles themselves join rank with Robin Hood and his merry men. These gangs were made up of common thieves and criminals. They were far from mastermind criminal operations. Among their long list of eventual crimes, there were theft of wine, hostage-taking, robbery of livestock, stealing from a church, and a number of other petty thefts. 
Historians today know that both of these gangs received help from locals, but McGinn notes it's unclear through what means they procured this aid. Could have been intimidation, admiration, or some combination of the two. Even though these gangs were hardly honorable, I think it's possible that people of old could have romanticized them in some way. I mean, certainly today, people do the same with many of our modern criminals. Just look at any number of successful pieces of media. In the Tales of Robin Hood, Friar Tuck is a former monk who lives on the edge of Sherwood Forest and regularly assists Robin Hood in his criminal work. In the 15th century, a clergy member is recorded as being an evildoer who poached game, robbed homes, and threatened to murder a number of government officials. These records refer to this man three times by the name Frere Took, as McGlynn points out. Furthermore, the idea of an evil-doing clergy member was not rare. The Folville gang that we spoke about earlier had three clergymen within their ranks. An archdeacon in 1370 was accused of homicide. There were trials in the 12th century that included church members being accused of using church law to skirt local law. So as we learn more and more about the Robin Hood story and its cultural implications, one resounding question presents itself amidst this long list of parallels. Was Robin Hood then real at all? In any sense of the word, was there ever a historical figure who served as the inspiration for Robin Hood? Robin Hood was not real at least in the most literal sense of the word. There was no single individual named Robin Hood on whom the ballads and stories are based. However, several real-life flesh-and-blood figures have been suggested as inspirations for the character. With these people, we do run into a chicken-versus-the-egg issue. Was Robin Hood initiated because of their acts, or were their acts pulled into the Robin Hood mythos? There's no real agreement among historians. Sean McGlynn dedicates a long passage of his book to combing through candidates for Robin Hood, but by examining just one, we can understand clearly the problems with there being a real Robin Hood. One of the most popular suggestions is a man named Eustace the Monk. Active between the years 1190 and 1217, Eustace spent much of his life as an outlaw. Eustace was born in 1170, and after some early experiments with other vocations, he entered a monastery in the year 1190. There, it was abundantly clear that he was not fit for monastic life. He ate when he should have fasted, he cursed during prayer, and born from an odd sense of humor, he farted loudly during moments of peace in the monastery. After being kicked out of the monastery, Eustace took to the forest and began a life of banditry. There, he and a gang of associates robbed, plundered, and had Robin Hood-ish narrow escapes from the law. His main foe was a French count who held dominion over the forest. Eustace regularly used deception and disguise to his ends, much like Robin. The outlaw monk had a darker side, too. On one occasion, he cut off the feet of four knights. In another, he forced a child to hang himself. Broadly speaking, in fact, Eustace was often described as basically evil. In his life, there's plenty to compare to Robin Hood. Thievery, banditry, the role of the forest, and violence against an authority figure. The timing of Eustace's retirement also aligns with the likely origination of Robin Hood as a figure. But as McGlynn notes, there are a lot of reasons that Eustace cannot be the inspiration for Robin Hood. 
For one, the tales of Eustace are likely heavily embellished themselves. He was a real man, but there is no way to verify the veracity of these stories. Indeed, the literary devices and subjects explored in stories of Eustace don't just conform to a Robin Hood template. Instead, they conform to a broader storytelling sensibility of the time. These elements, thievery, violence, rebellion, are common across a number of medieval works. Eustace's story and the things that happen in it are not really unique at all. He also has no association with a bow and arrow. In addition, he is French, and Robin Hood has at its core a sense of English patriotism. During these years, the French were at war with the English. It's unlikely that a French hero would enter into the canon of great Englishmen. Eustace is also pretty much evil, whereas Robin Hood was a sympathetic character. As McGlynn looks at other potential options for a real Robin Hood, he runs into many of the same issues. There are several candidates, but their claims to Robin Hood are all crucially sacrificed by any number of the same issues that plague Eustace's. However, there is one exception. According to McGlynn, there is one man who seems to satisfy every bit of the Robin Hood lore. William of Kensham, sometimes recorded as William of Cassingham or Collingham, is an obscure figure from English history. But he appears in certain texts chronicling early 13th century England as a bow-wielding outlaw-slash-freedom fighter who lives, of course, in the forest. In 1215, England was in a civil war after many landowners had joined a revolt against King John. These men offered the crown to Prince Louis of France, who landed in England in 1216. At one point, over two-thirds of the important barons in England swore allegiance to Prince Louis. Shortly thereafter, Louis was ruling a huge portion of the country, and King John was left tucked away in the West Country. At this point, Louis was kind of, effectively, the King of England, as McGlynn points out but within his lands there were three significant pockets of resistance. One of these was an area called Weald, which crossed into Kent and Sussex. In the Middle Ages, Weald was a massive and heavily forested area that extended almost entirely to England's marshy coastline. In fact, the name Weald actually means trees. This complex, difficult terrain meant it was an impossible place for the French to dominate entirely, as McGlynn points out. In Weald, we find the dominion of William of Kensham. Up until this point, very little is known about William's life. It seems he worked in mostly mundane civilian jobs, but when the French occupied England, William truly rose to prominence. Roger of Wendover was an important chronicler of Middle Age England. He wrote in one work of the time that Louis had completely conquered Weald, including all of its towns and fortresses. But within the region of Weald, there was a, quote, young man named William refusing to make his fealty to Louis. Wendover's writing states that William, quote, collected 1,000 archers and took to the isolated places and forests which abounded there. Indeed, history tells us just this. William had gathered a large army of ordinary folk who were reasonably skilled in archery. Within the forest, his men waged a guerrilla war against the French with a pretty high amount of success. Over a time period of 18 months, William's men ambushed the French as they passed through the forest. William was quite violent as well. 
they killed thousands of Frenchmen, and historical record says he didn't take any prisoners, but instead beheaded any captured French soldiers. These efforts quickly made William pretty famous, earning him the nickname Willikin of the Weald. In September of 1216, King John even wrote a letter to William and his men thanking them for their service to the crown. King John would die shortly thereafter, leaving the throne to his son, Henry III. During this time, barons and even knights changed sides between the French and the English, often going back and forth several times. William and his men, however, remained loyal to the new king and continued to attack the French invaders. In one incident, the French needed desperately to access the coastline in order to gain more supplies and reinforcements. Of course, to get to this coastline, they would need to travel through the Weald. William and his men destroyed all of the bridges in the area and took charge of all of the roads. The French were entirely unable to get through William's guard. Eventually, the French abandoned their conquest of England, not entirely due to William's men, certainly, but they contributed more than their fair share to the English efforts. After the war, the crown recognized William's service, made him warden of the Weald, and set him up with a nice pension. Certainly, in aesthetics, William makes good claim to the title of Robin Hood. He was a commoner, fighting in resistance on the side of a rightful king and leading a large force of archers in a forest. Many other contenders fall into either the hero or outlaw category. None of them are able to be both in the way that a Robin Hood inspiration would require. William of Kensham certainly solves this. His patriotic resistance to the French makes him an English hero and a French outlaw at the same time. Robin Hood is famous for stealing from the rich and giving to the poor. While he rarely actually does this so literally, we can easily uncover a link between William and this philosophy. In addition to their intimate knowledge of the forest, as McGlynn discusses, William's men had a further advantage over their French enemies, the support of family and friends in the region. The implications of guerrilla support have been noted in a number of other conflicts throughout history, and the wield would have been no different. William's men were fed, housed, and supplied by the local population. William and his band enjoyed a significant amount of plunder from their victims. It's not hard to imagine them sharing these spoils with the people of the Weald, whether in repayment or to keep those civilians on their side. There is not definitive proof of this, it is just a conclusion, but we should remember the Robin Hood philosophy of stealing from the rich and giving to the poor was a pretty minor part of those stories, to the extent that a real Robin Hood probably need not do this to be eligible for the title. Robin Hood stories take place in Nottingham and Sherwood Forest. Neither of these places are anywhere near the Weald, but there still exists a connection between William of Kensham and the setting of Robin Hood. During the French occupation, the English military forces had their headquarters in Nottingham. King John kept fairly regular correspondence with William, who emerged as one of the king's most loyal fighters. King John also spent the last few weeks of his life in Nottingham. It seems likely that this would mean the forces in Nottingham knew about William. In fact, as one of the leading resistance commanders, William's exploits would have certainly been well known at the English headquarters, whether or not that came through King John. William's story was perfect propaganda. An ordinary and patriotic man standing up to the French and perhaps even leading the resistance against them. We know that word spread about William in this time. He is mentioned in three different chronicles of the age. 
doesn't take any huge stretch of the imagination to conceive of William's tales traveling primarily, quickly, and even originally around Nottingham. If you're interested in the search for a real Robin Hood, or really anything about Robin Hood, I cannot recommend McGlynn's book enough. Much of the material in this video comes from his research, but ultimately McGlynn makes his very convincing case for William of Kensham being Robin Hood. Even he admits, though, that there is no way to determine this with any certainty. And really, I think we should not get too hung up on assigning one individual to the tales of Robin Hood. It almost doesn't even matter. After all, those tales are much bigger than any one person. I've always thought reductiveness to be a bad thing. Stories, fictional or non-fictional, need context for us to understand them fully. And while I still believe that, writing this essay has given me pause on the comprehensiveness of that belief. Accurately or not, Robin Hood has been largely distilled into taking from the rich and giving to the poor. The historical context of the tales is worthwhile, it's just interesting, and it reveals how little has changed, despite how much has changed, since medieval England. Furthermore, I think there's something to be said for appreciating folklore holistically and comprehensively. But perhaps it is this simplification that has kept the stories alive for so long. The tales of Robin Hood arguably feel just as relevant as they ever could. So through simplicity and indeed reductiveness, folktales like Robin Hood can provide us with permanent and easy routes to difficult conversations. While these tales do not lead us to answers directly, having the conversation is certainly the first step in that direction.